Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, Ayala, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop update on thyroid cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between many cancer organizations, and I particularly want to call out um, Thy-Kai, uh, Thyroid Cancer Survivors Association, who have actually, I think, notified many of you about this program, as well as Light of Life Foundation. So um, I, I want to thank you all for being on this call today. We have a really record number of people. This is a large call. We have 445 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. And we also, however, have a record number of people internationally on this call. And I'm going to raid the countries because it's very amazing. Um, and this has never happened in our 30-year history to have so many people from so many different countries. Australia, Bermuda, Brazil, Canada, China, Honduras, India, Japan, Lebanon, Malaysia, Mexico, Pakistan, Philippines, Puerto Rico, Romania, Singapore, Spain, and Venezuela. So we welcome both our international participants and our people, all the participants from the United States as well. Now, today's program is supported by ISI, Inc., and I want to thank them for their support of the program. And I uh, actually, we have wonderful speakers today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Stephanie Fish. And Dr. Fish is board-certified endocrinologist, associate member under Endocrine Division, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, associate program director of a combined endocrine fellowship program, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and Wild Cornell School of Medicine. And Dr. Fish is going to address an overview of thyroid cancer, diagnosing and staging, treatment options, and novel approaches to treat refractory thyroid cancer. It is really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Fish. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, I'm very happy to speak to everyone this afternoon. Um, I have a lot to cover, so I'm just going to start a little bit with <clears throat> the diagnosis of thyroid cancer, which will generally start with a presentation of a thyroid nodule that may be palpable or may be discovered incidentally in some sort of an imaging study that's done for another reason. And generally, based on the size and the appearance of the thyroid nodule, a biopsy or fine needle aspiration would be recommended. And it's based on the results of that fine needle aspiration that we can see cells that look like thyroid cancer. And sometimes we see cells that are suspicious but not clearly thyroid cancer. But generally, that's the starting point when thyroid surgery would be considered or recommended. Another part of that Initial evaluation that's important is ultrasound that not only will identify these thyroid nodules, but in a situation where we do see um, cells that look like thyroid cancer, the ultrasound is very important to evaluate lymph nodes in the neck prior to surgery. Thyroid cancer most commonly can spread to lymph nodes, and we it's best if we can identify them prior to surgery, and that way the most complete surgery can happen um, right at that initial time. <clears throat> Excuse me. So once the diagnosis is made and surgery is um, completed, there are several different types of what we call well-differentiated thyroid cancer, but by far the most common type is papillary thyroid cancer. Um, there are different variants of papillary thyroid cancer. Classic is the most common type, 
but there are other types such as the follicular variant and some types that can behave more aggressively such as the tall cell variant of papillary thyroid cancer. Um, the second most common type of thyroid cancer is follicular thyroid cancer, which is also a well-differentiated thyroid cancer. <coughs> and then Herthel cell cancer, which is sort of in between, an in-between type of cancer, but is a type of a follicular thyroid cancer. Um, there can be more aggressive types of thyroid cancer that we see, such as a poorly differentiated thyroid cancer. The most aggressive type is an anaplastic thyroid cancer. Um, these are all cancers that are based from the follicular cell of the thyroid gland. There is a second completely different type of thyroid cancer called medullary thyroid cancer, which is formed from the C-cell of the thyroid gland, and that, that type of cancer we're not going to really cover on um, this teleconference today. So we're going to mostly focus on the treatment of well-differentiated thyroid cancer. Um, so after surgery, when the pathology is determined and we see what type of cancer it is, the next step is kind of determining the stage of that thyroid cancer and, and figuring out the best way to treat beyond surgery. And it happens that there's been a new staging system for thyroid cancer that was established just um, in January of this year. So the staging system has recently changed, so I will go over it in a little bit of detail because it's different um, than it had been prior. One thing to keep in mind, the idea of staging a cancer is really based to, to predict death from cancer, and thyroid cancer as a whole is a cancer that's often quite treatable and a low risk of death, and so that most patients with thyroid cancer will have a lower stage of that thyroid cancer. Um, <coughs> And in fact, the staging system of thyroid cancer is very unique in that it really is different depending on the age of the patient. Um, in the new staging system, the age cutoff is 55 years. So patients with thyroid cancer less than 55 years old have one staging system, and patients with thyroid cancer older than 55 years have a separate and different staging system. With those younger patients, less than 55, most patients will be stage one, the lowest stage with the best overall prognosis. You will be stage one even if there is spread of the cancer to lymph nodes and spread locally in the neck. The only way that you can move from stage one to stage two if you're less than 55 years old is if you have metastatic thyroid cancer that has spread outside of the neck to other parts of the body such as the lungs, um, which is the most common site that we would see. So less than 55, only two stages, stage one or stage two. In patients diagnosed who are older than 55, then there are four separate stages to thyroid cancer. And again, this is in the new system, stage one is going to be any tumor less than four centimeters that's confined to the thyroid gland with no signs of invasion. Stage two is a tumor that may be either greater than four centimeters or if there are lymph node metastasis either in the central neck or in the lateral neck. Stage three then is um, tumors that have more extension outside of the thyroid and invasion into the trachea, esophagus, or other muscle tissue within the neck. And stage four is those patients who have um, metastasis outside of the neck to lung, bone, or other parts of the body. So that's a little bit unique with thyroid cancer, and so I just wanted to make that staging system clear. 
So after surgery, once the pathology and the staging is determined, then we have to determine what the next, the best treatment is. And it used to be traditionally everyone with thyroid cancer had the same treatment. Generally, it included thyroid surgery. It then included radioactive iodine ablation and then treatment with thyroid hormone at doses high enough to maintain some mild hyperthyroidism or suppression of the TSH. And another thing that's sort of been changing lately and sort of a movement in thyroid cancer is that there's much more recognition that this one-size-fits-all policy is really not necessary. Thyroid cancer in each individual is very different, and the approach really needs to be individualized. And so the current guidelines and treatment recommendations are really based on what we know about the risk of recurrence in thyroid cancer, because that's really, we know people do well, survival is excellent, but what we get concerned about more is what's the risk that this thyroid cancer is going to come back. And we, did, we base our treatment based on understanding that risk so that patients with a low risk of recurrence, generally surgery alone is often going to treat that tumor. And we don't typically recommend other treatments such as radioactive iodine ablation. So what we see in pathology in a low-risk tumor is tumor that's confined to the thyroid, no invasion into the bloodstream or extension outside of the thyroid, um, no significant lymph node disease, or if there are lymph node metastasis, they're very small. And so in that situation, generally, surgery would be completed if there, if the sometimes even only a hemithyroidectomy would be completed. So sometimes you don't even need the whole thyroid taken out. If it's a small, low-risk tumor, you can remove just part of the thyroid and monitor after that. But if the whole thyroid is removed, then after the surgery, you would need to be on levothyroxine or thyroid hormone therapy, but generally wouldn't require treatment with radioactive iodine that's used to sort of destroy or ablate any residual tissue or tumor that's left behind. And in fact, even in these low-risk tumors, there's even a movement for some very small tumors that, we've, that, that are just watched and monitored without surgery, so that sometimes we can see on imaging a small tumor less than a centimeter that's right within the thyroid. The risk of spread or recurrence in those types of tumor is so low that sometimes we'll monitor those, that situation without any surgery. So low-risk tumors, low risk of recurrence, less aggressive treatment. Then as we fall into a more intermediate risk um, of recurrence, now it becomes a little harder to decide what to do. But these are situations where the tumor has some in, may have some invasion into the bloodstream, a little extension into the soft tissues around the thyroid, or small um, metastatic lymph nodes. In this situation, surgery is recommended, and generally a total thyroidectomy. You're going to be put on thyroid hormone, levothyroxine, and the TSH level is kept at a low level or suppressed. But in this situation, the recommendations based on the guideline is for selective use of radioactive iodine. So some patients with intermediate risk cancer, radioactive iodine will be recommended, but not universally. And it's a lot, a little bit physician dependent and dependent on the degree of invasion that we see in the tumor. And then lastly, when we see a more high risk tumor, these can be larger tumors, 
um, more lymph node metastasis, at least five metastatic lymph node, or very large lymph nodes greater than three centimeters. In this situation now, we're going to do that total thyroidectomy, we're going to do the lymph node dissection, and we're going to treat with radioactive iodine. And that treatment with radioactive iodine is meant to try to help to reduce the risk of recurrence. It's not going to take it down to zero, but it hopefully will destroy small metastatic disease and helpfully reduce the risk of recurrent disease over time. Again, they'll be treated, you'll be treated with levothyroxine to maintain a suppressed or low TSH level. So you'll be kept just slightly hyperthyroid as a way to help suppress any growth, it should there be any residual tumor left behind. And from there, once that initial treatment has been completed, now what we think about is our monitoring and surveillance. And as I said, while the risk of recurrence may not be very high, we still need to monitor things over time and look for signs of disease. And that surveillance generally includes two different types of um, testing. One is a blood test, that's thyroglobulin, which is a protein that's made by normal thyroid tissue and made by thyroid cancer. And we do monitor the thyroglobulin level. If that level is elevated, it's a sign based on the blood test result that there is some residual or recurrent tumor there. The other surveillance testing that we do is generally ultrasound because the most common place for thyroid cancer to recur is in the neck, in lymph nodes in the neck. And so the best way for us to see those lymph nodes is with ultrasound and then determine if any treatment is necessary based on those results. In the surveillance, if we'd see, sometimes we can see a rise in the thyroglobulin and no clear disease on the ultrasound, and it's in that situation that we'll do other imaging studies, sometimes CAT scans of the neck and chest, sometimes PET scans to look more thoroughly at the whole body and try to identify disease. The real key being that we don't really, we can't really treat a thyroglobulin level itself. We need to identify some structural disease and really by, and know how to treat based on where that disease is and what we're seeing. And what those treatments may be if there's recurrent disease in the neck, often we'll recommend additional surgery to remove that. If we see recurrences in the, in the lungs, typically these are little small nodules throughout the lungs. They can sometimes be treated with radioactive iodine, but sometimes these small lung nodules become resistant and don't respond to radioactive iodine over time. And that's when we can start to think about some of the more advanced um, treatments that are out there and will be discussed a little bit more by our next um, speaker. But I just wanted to mention that when you see metastatic disease and we monitor it over time, generally the next step in treatment and these more um, and these other therapies are used in the setting when the disease is growing or progressing. It's very common that we may identify metastatic disease and we may watch it for a period of time. And only if we see it growing and getting larger over time, we would think about therapies, therapies that can be used to help tumors start to take up radioactive iodine again. It's called redifferentiation therapy or a more systemic therapy with treatments like tyrosine kinase inhibitors that can help they won't cure the thyroid cancer, but they can help slow the progression in disease that is growing. Um, 
the last thing I want to say, some, while these are the most typical sites that we see metastatic disease, we will sometimes see disease in the bones or the brain or other areas. And in those situations, we really try to treat that focal disease. Often radiation to the bone can help to slow progression. Similarly, in the brain, radiation or sometimes surgery can be helpful. So we really have to, those treatment plans have to be determined based on the site of disease as well as the rate of progression. And um, I know that was a lot of information, but um, I wanted to try to provide sort of comprehensive information of the basics of the diagnosis and the management of thyroid cancer. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sish. That was really outstanding and setting the whole stage for the program and really, really helping people to understand um, thyroid cancer, its treatment, um, so very clearly. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Christoph Misikowicz. And Dr. Misikowicz is Associate Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Medical Oncology, Assistant Professor of Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai Hospital. And Dr. Masikowitz is going to address the role of clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options, managing side effects and discomfort, and the importance of communicating with your healthcare team about your quality of life concerns. It is my great pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Masikowitz. Uh, hello, so good afternoon or maybe good morning, depending on your location. It's a, such an extensive audience. I'm very excited. And uh, thank you, Dr. Fish, for excellent talk. So thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the uh, first uh, role of clinical trial. So I'm going to divide my uh, talk into two, I would say, paragraphs. First, uh, I want to discuss the uh, iodine-sensitive thyroid cancer. So this is the one that we can treat with the radioactive iodine. And the second part, I want to discuss the cancer that uh, iodine doesn't work anymore, and we call it iodine-resistant or refractory. So when it comes to the, to, for the first part, for the iodine-sensitive cancer, as we heard, the radioactive iodine is the best treatment. And I totally agree with this, not only because it is a selective, uh, meaning that it can only target, it will only target the thyroid tissue. It will not target your healthy other tissue. So uh, it's very sophisticated and very efficacious, and uh, this is the best treatment that we have currently. It has minimal toxicity. It works regardless of the location, so it works well in your neck. It works well in your metastasis you have and in your lungs and other parts of your body. But the main challenge that we have is that uh, it doesn't work for everybody. Sometimes it doesn't work for all the type of cancer, but sometimes it does work initially, and at some point, obviously, the cancer becomes resistant. So obviously, the question is what we can do to make it work better. It's sort of like the radioactive iodine is kind of knocking at the door to the cancer cells trying to enter them and trying to kill them. So uh, what we can do to kind of let the radioactive iodine in. And basically, there are two strategies that currently are being tested in clinical trials. The first one, we call them tyronase kinase inhibitors or other targeted agents. So those are essentially pills. And those pills are given for a few, for few days or a few weeks prior patients are given radioactive iodine. And the purpose is to kind of open the door to those um, cancer cells and keep it open so that when the radioactive iodine is given, essentially can get in and kill the cancer. And sometimes those pills are given for a few days after. So this treatment has the beginning, has the end. It's not something that patients, they, they take for the rest of, uh, of their life. This is just for the time of giving the radioactive iodine. And uh, we don't know, obviously, uh, if, um, if, uh, 
if obviously the, those treatments are going to be successful or not, and that's why that the purpose of this is to test it and uh, encourage your participation. So obviously we can learn if this is the new strategy that we can develop. The other strategy that we have is called immunotherapy. And I'm heard there is so much about immunotherapy currently that we see in the media. So yes, immunotherapy is being tested in the radioactive iodine uh, uh, cancers, in the radioactive iodine sensitive cancer. So this is another modality that we can use. And essentially the, the purpose is the same. We just want to make sure that the radioactive iodine is going to be delivered. So obviously, without your participation, we cannot, we cannot move forward. So obviously, not only by participating in those clinical trials, you're going to have access to those new, very innovative, cutting-edge treatments that you can benefit from, but also you can help other people. So we can use those strategies in the future, and obviously we can help other people. So now I want to move to uh, radioactive resistant treatment. So patients that they have metastatic disease, for those patients, radioactive iodine did work for some time, and it, unfortunately, at some point, it doesn't work anymore, and the cancer sometimes stays quiet or sometimes is growing. So, and obviously, the question is, what we can do for those patients? So I'm going to give you a little bit of the historic background and to kind of show you how we can benefit from your participation in the clinical trial. So for many, many years, we were using chemotherapy. This, the name of the chemotherapy is called Dr. Robeson. We were using this because there was nothing else available. Unfortunately, the bad news, the chemotherapy was very toxic. Uh, most of the oncologists, they didn't like it because of the toxicity, and we were very discouraged because of that. So in 2013, we had the first other than chemotherapy agent that was approved by FDA is called Serafinib or Nexovar. So obviously we're very excited. This is an oral agent that showed efficacy. And finally, we were able to use something else um, besides chemotherapy. Then subsequently, two years later, we have Lenvima. Lenvatinib is another medication is being, that was approved in uh, treatment of differentially tired cancer based on astonishing results that was um, derived from the large clinical trials with hundreds of patients being tested and treated with this drug. So again, so the question now is what we can do to kind of have another uh, medication that's going to be approved. We have 2018, so obviously I would be very, very happy to have more treatment options for my patients. But I cannot do it without your participation. So obviously what we can do. So right now what we do see is that some of the medications that are being tested in clinical trials are completely new. But some of them, sometimes we borrow information from the other cancer, something that we know it does work in other cancer, and we're trying to see if it's going to work in thyroid cancer. But without testing those drugs in the thyroid cancer, they're not going to be FDA-approved, and we, we cannot use them because we don't know if they're going to work. So again, this is another reason to obviously be enrolled in the clinical trial. So some of those medications I mentioned already, those are the tyrannase kinase inhibitors, those are oral medications that target the cancer, and most of the time they don't target other uh, healthy tissues. So they're very sophisticated, and obviously there are many numerous uh, clinical trials with different, uh, different medications that are being tested. Another example that I want to give, there are some medications that are being tested, being used in other cancers like melanoma, and I'm referring to BRAF inhibitors. Those are not new medications, but we know they do work in melanoma, so obviously we want to make sure that we, we're going to find out if those medications are going to work in differentiated thyroid cancers. 
but there is a requirement. If you want to be on this treatment, you have to have certain mutation called BRAF mutation, so then you can be treated with the BRAF inhibitors. We know that this strategy did work in melanoma. So we want to see if this strategy is going to work in differential thyroid cancer. And since it was so successful in melanoma, so obviously we hope that it's going to be as successful in thyroid cancer. But again, we cannot do it without you. And obviously, I would be more than happy to treat patients like you on the clinical trial. The other strategy that is kind of being explored in uh, thyroid cancer is immunotherapy. So what is immunotherapy? So normally when we give chemotherapy or any other form of the treatment, we're trying to poison the cancer. Obviously, we're trying to poison the cancer, but at the same time, unfortunately, you're being exposed to the side effects of those medications because to some degree we're poisoning your body or damaging your body or hurting your body and exposing you to some side effects. Immunotherapy, basically what it does right now, your own body cannot see your cancer. Your body is kind of being tricked. When you catch a flu, when you catch any other infection, your body can see it, but your body cannot see the cancer. So what we do with immunotherapy, we either make your cancer uh, visible so your own body can see it and fight it as it can fight with other infections, or we kind of turn your own immune system so your immune system can kind of go into surge mode, find your cancer, and maybe kill it. This strategy did work, and it does work in other cancers, not in all of them. So obviously, it would be very interesting to see if this strategy is going to work in the uh, differentiated thyroid cancer. But again, we cannot, do it, we cannot do it without your participation. So this is about the treatment, and this is about what's going on in general in the area of clinical trials and differentiated thyroid cancer. Now I want to move a little bit to uh, other topic, which is the toxicity and side effect. So as was mentioned before, I think the first question that is very uh, uh, interesting that uh, Dr. Fish, she mentioned that not all the thyroid cancer patients that have to be treated, even if they have distant metastases, even if the cancer is present in their body, because sometimes this cancer kind of stays quiet, and we don't really have to do anything about this. So obviously, it's very critical that you're in very close contact with your physician. So this is something that can be watched. And if at some point the cancer is going to wake up, maybe this is the time to treat your cancer. And what are the kind of situations that I personally treat the, uh, the thyroid cancer? So obviously, one of them, if it's a rapidly growing cancer. So I know that, obviously, if it's rapidly growing, I better treat now because, obviously, I don't want any of my patients to develop any complications or, or symptoms or complaints from the cancer. So this is one situation. The other situation is location matters. So if the cancer is kind of located next to a vital organ, such as heart, so obviously, yes, it's better to treat it now, even if it's small, because obviously you don't want to be in the situation that your heart's going to be in jeopardy or your heart's going to be sick because of the presence of the cancer next to it. And, and the other one is symptoms. So obviously, if cancer is making you sick, if the cancer is making you that obviously you have complaints, this is the time to treat it. So I would say those are the moments that I would be strongly encouraging patients to start a treatment. Otherwise, I think it depends on the specific clinical situations, so I would encourage you to talk to your physicians. So what are the potential side effects that you can see from the medication that we currently use in iodine refractory thyroid cancer? So meaning that the radioactive iodine doesn't work anymore, and now we're treating you with those thyronase kinase inhibitors, meaning oral medications. 
So the most common ones is hypertension. So patients, they start the medication, they come back, and they say that the high, high blood, I mean, the blood pressure kind of goes up or the high blood pressure that they had got worse. So obviously, this is something that can be easily addressed by either reducing the medication that you're currently on, if that uh, the anti-cancer medication, or we can refer you to the cardiologist to adjust your medication. The other side effect that I commonly see is fatigue, poor appetite, and obviously depending how bad it is, I think the best treatment is to reduce the uh, anti-cancer medication because once it's reduced, then we know that patients they have improvement of those. The other thing that I see is a muscle pain and joint pain. And besides the painkillers, the dose reduction of those medications that we use in treatment of the thyroid cancer, it's the best strategy. I don't see as much of cough or any respiratory problems, but this is something that can be seen. Also, nausea and vomiting, and as well as a diarrhea. But again, this is something that has to be addressed by your physician. So I would strongly encourage you to be in a very close contact because sometimes it's a simple phone call. The patient just calls me. They tell me about what they suffer from, and I can clearly instruct them what to do because sometimes it's very simple. I just tell them to take less of the medication, but I just tell them that they need a vacation for a few days if the degree of this toxicity is very high. Or sometimes they have to come to see me in my clinic. But this is something that only can be resolved if you're going to call your physician. So in terms of the other medication that we use, such as immunotherapy, so the good thing is even though it is experimental in the area of uh, differentiated thyroid cancer, we as oncologists, we know the side effects of those. So this is many times nothing new to us. So obviously I would again, encourage you to be uh, obviously in the close contact with your physician. Sometimes, as trivial as it may sound, diarrhea that uh, immunotherapy can cause obviously can lead to a very serious problem such as colitis. And that's why I would strongly encourage you, no matter how benign it sounds, to get in touch with your uh, health team so they can address it. So this is what I have to say about the clinical trials and the side effects of the therapies that we use in the treatment of thyroid cancers. I would, I would like to encourage you to participate in, a, in any clinical trials that probably is available around you so we can get better, so we can get better treatments. But at the same time, you can benefit from, from this because it's giving you the access to very promising and innovative medica medications and we cannot do better without your participation. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Masikowicz. That was really wonderful as well, outstanding. And thank you for participating in clinical trials. So I know there'll be questions for Dr. Masikowicz during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is a dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bearden is going to address nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation, addressing nutritional concerns in the presence of thyroid cancer. Nutrition and hydration are key to tolerance um, during treatment and provide you energy to do the things you enjoy. A plant-based diet is most ideal um, for all stages, prevention, during treatment, and in survivorship. This translates into having about two-thirds of your plate covered with plant-based foods. And examples of plant-based foods are things like whole grains, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds. The benefit of plant-based foods are they provide us 
with important components such as antioxidants, phytochemicals, and fiber. The other third of your plate should be of lean protein. And lean protein, um, some examples of those are a wild-caught fish, poultry, and even beans. Um, protein is very important. It's um, a building block for healing, um, the development of tissue and cells. And so um, especially if you're going through treatment, um, this is important to help with your healing and recovery. When selecting plant-based foods, um, picking fresh or frozen um, it are really, is really the best form to get um, from the store. Um, by incorporating a variety of colors into your diet um, of the plant-based foods, you're inoculating yourself with a variety of phytochemicals and antioxidants, which will help protect your body and your other cells um, while addressing normal daily functions that your body needs. There may be a need for you to take a supplement um, due to your unique circumstances during your treatment, after your treatment, or even before your treatment. Um, talk with your doctor about this. Um, never start any supplements or vitamins on your own. Uh, oftentimes, these can be incompatible with the treatment that you're receiving and um, could impede the effectiveness. There are many times in your treatment you may have to modify your diet, potentially. Um, this could be a texture modification. It could be um, a temperature modification. And so that's normal. People have um, unique needs, and not everyone's the same. Following your healthcare provider's recommendations will help you tolerate intake. Um, constant communication with your healthcare team is absolutely essential. Um, tell them about the challenges you're experiencing. Tell them soon so that they can help address those um, with you and you will have those rectified more quickly or at least subdued. Hydration is something we oftentimes forget about, and patients need, most people need, between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature, such as water, juice, sports drinks. If you're experiencing side effects, keep a daily food log. Um, this way you can take it to your health care provider, um, ask to speak with your dietitian, and they can start making suggestions to help you tolerate things better. Um, a dietitian can also give you information such as calorie and protein needs um, along with the fluid needs for your, for your specific um, treatment and um, also discuss any modifications you might need to make. I appreciate being part of today's workshop. I'll now pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. Uh, so I'm going to move on to our next speaker, and our next, next speaker is Ms. Caroline Edland. Um, Ms. Edlin is our online support group program director at Cancer Care, and Ms. Edlin is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn it over to Ms. Ms. Um, Edlin. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of the call today. And I would like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with thyroid cancer and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. 
All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and their family and friends, and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with a diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face groups in our local offices in the New York area, as well as telephone and online groups. In fact, we offer an online group specifically dedicated to the needs and experiences of people diagnosed with thyroid cancer. You can register on Cancer Care's website at www.cancercare.org. This group and our groups in general offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a Cancer Care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this all means for you and your family. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are here to help. So please do consider contacting us at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. Thank you so much for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Eglin. That was wonderful. And now we have time for questions. And um, we actually um, have a lot of time for questions. So I'm going to ask, uh, um, ask Ayala to bring all of our speakers on board. And actually, I'm going to ask Ayala also to explain to all of you how to queue up and ask questions. And we will have the questions begin. Um, so um, please get ready for your questions. And Ayala, would you tell everybody, some people are already putting out posting questions, so we're going to have Ayala tell everybody what to do so you'll all be able to post your questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And our first question comes from Emil S. Your line is now open. If you have a non-working thyroid and have been on Synthroid for a long time, can you still get thyroid cancer? And is thyroid cancer a slow-growth or fast-growth cancer, and what is the likelihood of recurrence after treatment? Thank you, Emil, um, for that question. And um, actually, um, Dr. Fish, would you like to address that question? Two parts to it. Sure. <clears throat> yeah. So first, yes, in... Um, in a patient who has an underactive thyroid or hypothyroidism, um, they can still develop thyroid cancer. Um, so that just having the, in general, thyroid cancer nodules and growths in the thyroid are completely separate from the function and the working of the thyroid. So typically, even in a patient who who may have normal thyroid function, having thyroid cancer or finding a nodule that's cancerous typically won't affect the function of the thyroid. But similarly, if you have um, thyroid dysfunction, either hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism, it is still possible to have also a nodular growth that is cancerous. Um, So that is something that's possible. And then um, 
the second part of the question was, I believe, about if um, I can't remember. I'm sorry. Uh, let's see. Um, one of, um, the second part of the question was, um, oh, in terms of whether it tends to be a the risk of recurrence. It was something with the risk of recurrence. Yes, a slow growing after yes. treatment. Um, yeah, so the I mean, the risk of recurrence after treatment really depends on that initial pathology, the staging, and what we see at the, after the initial treatment. So that in patients, that that it, it's it, the answer is it depends. In a small tumor or a tumor confined to the thyroid, the risk of recurrence is quite low, probably less than five percent. In larger tumors or tumors with invasion or spread to lymph nodes at the initial diagnosis, the risk of recurrence is going to be higher, maybe as high as 10 to 20%. And then in those patients with more advanced disease or metastatic disease at presentation, obviously, they would have continuing disease. So that risk of recurrence really, it's not the same for everybody with thyroid cancer, and it depends a lot on what um, we see at the time of surgery and the pathology. Thank you. Um, and um, there's a second question from one of our participants um, and for Dr. Misikowitz, an online question. Can papillary cancer become anaplastic over time? Uh, yes. Yes. So, I mean, there are two types of the anaplastic titer that we see. So, the yeah. one of them is de novo, meaning that it starts directly from a healthy cell into uh, anaplastic thyroid. Uh, but sometimes we see the transformation of the differentiated thyroid cancer that kind of transforms into more aggressive. Uh, as of now, even though that we have some hypotheses that there is a difference in biology and maybe there's some difference uh, in terms of aggressiveness of those two cancers, but yes, they can convert into the anaplastic thyroid. This is the, the answer. Excellent. Um, and we have another telephone question, I believe. Um, Our next question is from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Thank you so much, Caroline. As usual, an excellent seminar. Um, I myself am a neurosocial worker, and I have a friend that has um, been diagnosed with the Herkel cell. And I wanted to hear more from Dr. Fish about the Herkel cell, that she's under watch and wait surveillance. How long do you wait, and uh, what testing more does she have to do? Um, and also, like, if it can go further, like you said before, that if, what's the difference with well-differentiated and poorly differentiated? Is this Herkel cell? Thank you so much. Dr. Fish, is this a question that um, you can address in a general way? Or? Yes, yes, I can. And so Herkel cell cancer, like I said, is sort of in between in that it is a type of a follicular thyroid cancer. It is a well-differentiated thyroid cancer. Um, the reason that I say it's in between is that typically follicular thyroid cancers spread through the bloodstream, and if they do spread, they typically spread more to the lungs or bones than locally to lymph nodes in the neck, whereas papillary thyroid cancer typically spreads locally to lymph nodes in the neck and then later in more aggressive disease potentially to other parts of the body. With Herthel cell cancer, you can see both. You can see spread locally to lymph nodes in the neck, and you can also see spread um, more distally to um, lungs or other parts of the body. So it can spread either way. Um, Herthel cell cancer, the treatment is still the same. Generally, surgery is the initial 
treatment, depending on what the pathology shows, depending on the size and the invasiveness of the tumor, treatment with radioactive iodine may be recommended. And from there, it is a matter of watching and waiting and monitoring. Um, the monitoring, it does make thyroglobulin, so we monitor thyroglobulin levels and typically monitor, um, again, with ultrasounds of the neck. If there's a rise in thyroglobulin um, and nothing seen in the neck, then we would think about looking at the lungs. But the surveillance um, for most of these well-differentiated well tumors is, is really quite similar. Awesome. Thank you. And um, we have a question for um, Dr. Misikowitz. Um How do I determine, and I guess this would be a question, Dr. Misikowitz, if you could answer it in a general way, how do I determine if I'm eligible for a clinical trial and which ones are available out there for thyroid cancer spread to lungs and bones? I live in California. So if you could address this in a general way in terms of how you get that information and sure. how you might approach business. Yes. Um, so it's, it's an excellent question, actually. So there are a few things. Uh, I would strongly encourage you to talk to your physician. Uh, not only uh, he or she, they can look within the institution if there is any clinical trial that obviously can be part of. Uh, some of them, they can be designed specifically for differentiated thyroid cancer, uh, even for your particular situation. But sometimes, I have to say, and I would like to encourage you, sometimes we have a, what we call it the phase one clinical trial. There is no restriction if you have a thyroid cancer or any other type of the cancer. And even I would be interested uh, for my patients to obviously be involved in those trials too because it's giving you access sometimes to the same medications. So this is one way of doing this. The second, uh, there are some... search um, engines, uh, as I can call them. It's called clinicaltrials.gov, and it's a completely free service. And you can search within the service. Again, it's www.clinicaltrials.gov. You can type the disease that you have, and you can type uh, metastatic thyroid cancer, and you can look for a clinical trial all, all, the, all around the world. So you can even look for any clinical trial, but you can even narrow your search to, like, California or just United States. So uh, as you're going to see the service, so obviously you can kind of play with this and kind of decide which trial obviously, is best for you. Within the service, most of the time, you're going to be able to see eligibility criteria. We call them inclusion and exclusion. Inclusion meaning what you have to do in order to be part of and what are the features that makes the patient ineligible. And sometimes it's a type of cancer, other illnesses that the patient may have. Sometimes it's based on the lab results that the patient can or cannot be eligible. I would encourage you, but I would strongly encourage you to do the search with your oncologist because this is what we do in our practice. Even if we are experts in, in thyroid cancers, this is what I do. If I have a patient that I don't have a clinical trial within my institution, I ask my colleagues and I say, I, I know that you have this clinical trial. Can I refer this patient to you? And I think other physicians, other oncologists, they should do the same thing. They should be able to uh, guide you how to find such a clinical trial, which one is the best for you, and at the same time that Sometimes they can even reach out and discuss this case with the principal investigator and help you to be part of this clinical trial. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and there are, gosh, there are wonderful online questions. There's some more coming. This is a wonderful group today. Um, 
Uh, this question is for Dr. Fish. Um, so the question is, there was an article recently out of Israel regarding a breakthrough in decoding RAI resistance in order to help restore sensitivity. Is there anything on the horizon regarding clinical trials using this research? This is something, I have to say, the audience is very sophisticated, asking very informed questions, and is this something, uh, Dr. Fish, that we can address on this call? Or? Sure, I can... Um Yes, um, I'm not familiar with that particular specific article, um, but there are um, some trials in the United States as well that um, are utilizing these different tyrosine kinase inhibitors or different entities um, to try to help a tumor that is no longer taking up radioactive iodine and change it in such a way to allow it to take up radioactive iodine and to allow that radioactive iodine to be um, a good treatment. Um, the real movement in this right now is to try to base that treatment um, specifically on the genetic mutation within the tumor. So each different type of thyroid cancer, there are several different genetic mutations that are associated with the thyroid cancer. Like was mentioned before, the BRAF um, mutation is one that's quite common, especially in the tall cell variant of papillary thyroid cancer. And there are um, medications that are BRAF inhibitors that can be used um, as a way, as a treatment for several weeks, then then you can do an iodine scan to see if the tumor that wasn't taking up radioactive iodine now can start to take up radioactive iodine, in which case then you can try to use it as a treatment. So this is, again, part of these different clinical, it's still really being done as a clinical trial. It's not a standard of care or a standard treatment at this point, but in the setting of clinical trials or off-label use of these medications, it is being done in several different centers. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Sikowitz. Um, thank you. This is really, um, these are wonderful questions. And this is similar, I think, in some ways to the other, but different, I think. Um, what are some long-term treatments for the side effects of RAI as in salivary gland dysfunction and eye dryness? I did not have this problem after this first RAI treatment three years ago, but the latest treatment left me with eye and salivary gland dysfunction. If you could address this in a general way, and of course... Sure, sure, yes. So, uh, unfortunately, as uh, good as the radioactive iodide is and as sophisticated, unfortunately, some of the patients develop some long-term side effects and, unfortunately, uh, salivary gland damage, obviously, is one of them. And that can lead to xerostomia, which is a dryness of the mouth, and subsequently it can lead to lead to some dental problems. Um, the other ones are not very common. Something that I'm being asked as an oncologist that I have to say, uh, if there is any risk of development of any secondary cancer, if you can develop any kind of cancer in the future as a consequence of this treatment, uh, so yes, it can happen, the, but the, the chance of developing such a cancer is so minimal. I don't want to say it's completely neg negligible, and it's uh, dose-related. Uh, most likely, so it's obviously higher the dose, cumulative dose that you receive through the course of your life and treatment. Obviously, um, if it's going to happen, it's going to be happening in the very marginal fraction of patients and probably only in ones that they receive very high dose. So uh, I would say those are the most common side effects that we see with radioactive iodine. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Fish. Um, 
So who is the best doctor to treat, um, to follow a, a person with thyroid cancer, living with thyroid cancer, after a thyroidectomy? An oncologist and a chronologist or both? <laughs> it's a good question for both of us, right? <laughs> <laughs> both of you, okay, both of you. <laughs> Maybe we're going to argue. <laughs> um, you know, so what I would say is that in general, after the initial diagnosis and treatment, most typically it's going to be an endocrinologist that follows patients initially. But in those patients who have more aggressive disease or metastatic disease, those in whom we're thinking about that maybe at some point they may need a clinical trial or some of these more advanced treatments, those treatments are generally done by an oncologist. So what I would say, I would say that I typically do is I follow, I see patients after their surgery, um, determine the initial treatment, the radioactive, whether or not they need radioactive iodine, and then the surveillance, and then if they do develop um, metastatic disease or per, especially progressive metastatic disease, I would generally refer them to an oncologist at that point. Um, for consideration of some of these more um, advanced therapies. The only thing that uh, I would add, uh, I would say, um, it's just it should be followed by an expert. So obviously, uh, and I'm sure that you, you guys, you live in the different parts of the world and United States. I would say, if you have an endocrinologist, oncologist, or even a primary physician who has more expertise and treatment of the thyroid cancer. And obviously, there is no doubt that being an endocrinologist, oncologist, obviously, you may have more knowledge. Uh, I would say those are the patients, those are the doctors that you should follow with. So uh, obviously, the best way is to treat with more doctors because obviously, if they can cover cover aspects of the treatment that maybe cannot be covered by one physician. But I would say if you have an expert, regardless of our specialty, I think this is the best person you should be following with. And actually, you, and if you are seeing more than one person, you'd want them sort of to, and want to comment on this, Dr. Masiklis, you want those, you know, want to bring those two together so they are actually... Your correct, guys. correct. And because, I mean, there is no doubt we work as a team. I mean, uh, um, obviously, yes, I, I um, treat my patients uh, with my colleagues from endocrinology. It doesn't mean that the minute that, let's say, if you're going to develop a cancer that is not being treated and along with the radioactive iodine, that you should kind of give up on the endocrinologist. Absolutely not. And I'm going to say it again, absolutely not. So we work as a team, and obviously it doesn't have to happen at the same time. Obviously, we can both decide, obviously, how often we have to see you. But there is always a communication between us. I mean, I reach out to my endocrinologist and tell them what I think. And it's nice to have a brainstorm. And sometimes, you know, uh, having the somebody who is not really even involved in the treatment, sort of like an outsider, can become like a good advisor because obviously there is no involvement. It's sort of like a very objective person can guide you, and sometimes those decisions are very difficult. So yes, I would say you shouldn't be giving up on any doctor that you see, and obviously they actively involved in your treatment, the ones that are very caring, and obviously they want to be part of your treatment. So I would say even primary, primary physicians are extremely important in this. Thank you. And um, we have another question. Um, uh, actually, um, I'm going to have both Dr. Fish and Dr. Masikowitz address this. What are the treatments for cancer-related fatigue? I have mentioned to my endocrinologist about my fatigue and foggy brain and get nowhere as far as how to treat this. 
is this common in thyroid cancer patients? Dr. Masiklis, do you want to go first with us? Sure. It's actually, I can even divide because what I would cover, and with obviously if Dr. Feshi kind of uh, agree with this, I can mention because many times patients are being treated for iodine refractory thyroid cancer with medications like serafinib and vatinib or any other thyronase kinase inhibitors. And uh, there are two possibilities. Uh, one of the possibilities that patients that can develop fatigue is because the, the levothyroxine has to be adjusted. Um, so this is one reason. Second reason is we know that, unfortunately, as great are uh, those medications, lenvim and serafinib, they are, that absolutely amazing. They're doing an amazing job and helping us. But one of the side effects that is very, very common is the fatigue. So what I do, and I think this is what we should do, when we ruled out any other reason, obviously, for this fatigue, um, the only way to address this is sometimes to dose, uh, adjust the medication. So obviously, the way I presented this is to my patient, I say, listen, you know, on such and such a dose with, you know, uh, for your thyroid cancer, this is what we treat you with. If you're going to feel like this for the rest of your life, if it's going to be acceptable, if it's not going to be acceptable, it's a signal for me that we have to go down on the medication, on the dose. We have to dose reduce you. So many times this is the modality that we use to kind of address this. Excellent. And uh, Dr. Fish, do you want to add anything to that? or? No, I mean, I, I, I agree with everything. I think that with that, you know, again, it really depends on the type of thyroid cancer, but certainly these treatments are, that some of the treatments are associated with fatigue in patients who've been treated and don't have evidence of disease, typically fatigue is going to be related to the thyroid hormone levels. And while levothyroxine and the different thyroid medications are very good, they're not exactly the same as your th- as what your thyroid gland would produce. And some people do have some persistent fatigue related to um, the high, you know the lack of a thyroid gland. Actually, I should ask Miss um, Edlund if you'd like to comment in terms of the um, the specific um, online support groups that you that we offer um, in terms of these issues of fatigue and and just not not possible. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think support groups can be a wonderful way to connect with others about these types of concerns, you know, including fatigue, other treatment or disease side effects. Um, I think there's a lot of, of comfort and empowerment in joining a community of other people who relate to some of this, and they can share their own experiences and perhaps um, what is and what isn't working for them and uh, really provide a space to, um, you know, share and discuss questions, concerns, um, as well as the, the more personal and emotional experiences of, of living with cancer. Um, as I said earlier, we do offer an online support group specifically for thyroid cancer patients. Uh, the group started on February 1st, but is continuing to accept new members um, through the middle of April. Um, so if anyone is interested, you can register on Cancer Care's website. It's a wonderful resource, and it's free, and it's actually, it's, people find it really helpful to connect with others. Well, I have to say, this has been a remarkable call. I know that there are many questions still in queue, so I'm going to comment on those in terms of how to get your questions answered. Um, but I want to thank our speakers first. They've been outstanding, just a wonderful, um, just wonderful. And, and you and, they, and all of you as participants have asked really su- superb questions. I have to say, this has been an amazing call and one that we would like to do more of, I have to say. And... Um, 
And we also would like to do a program probably on fatigue as in a general issue because it is a, a, a issue that many of you confront, of course, um, and do have to deal with, and it's, it can be very frustrating. Um, so, um, but I do want to first of all let you know that there are resources for you to get your questions answered. So, for medical questions that you may have, of course, your healthcare team is a fantastic resource. You definitely want to utilize them. They are, of course, that they know the most about you. But I know some of you would like to get information from other sources as well. And so, I'd mentioned that there. Um, I want to mention an organization, um, Thigh Cancer. Um, and they are that will be sending information about them and your evaluations to fill out, and um, you'll be able to. They have both a website and um, an 800 number, and also Light of Light Foundation as well. So those are resources that you can contact. And the other one I always give out to everybody is the National Cancer Institute. Um, their number is 1-800-422-6237. And they also have a website, www.cancer.gov, and it's a fantastic resource to have because they have a live chat feature and you can post your question and the information specialist will get you information about it. And it's evidence-based, you know, research-based information, and that's good for people both in the U.S. and internationally as well to take advantage of that as a resource. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful resource to use. Um, and, um, and then for those of you who have any psychosocial concerns, either practical and financial concerns, or who want to join one of our support groups or online groups or telephone groups or get some counseling services from Cancer Care, you can just call us. Um, and I think we've given you the numbers, and they're all over everything, and you'll be getting the numbers at the end of the call anyway, but I'll, it's 1-800-813-4673 at cancercare.org is our website. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, we don't want any one of you to think you're alone. We want you to now know that you're part of a community of support and that we're here to help you. Um, you can access us by phone or by website. You can ask, pose a question on our website and you'll, one of our social workers will get back to you. Basically, we'll have total access to us, and I think please take advantage of that. And we also have provided you with a whole resource list of other organizations that equally are interested in helping you as well. So please, I know that you're in many different parts of the country and world, and there are moments when everyone feels so terribly alone, and I just want you to know that you are now connected to these resources. I also want to mention a program that it might be of interest to some of you. It's, um, it's actually a general program. It's on managing eye and vision changes related to cancer treatments. And some people, in general, we have, it's a, we have a group of ophthalmologists on that program really discussing um, things that people may um, be experiencing, uh, the dry eyes, uh, watery eyes, itching eyes, all the kinds of things that you may experience. And I think many people have found that program very helpful. It's occurring actually um, on uh, Monday, February 26th, um, and uh, we will be sending information about that as well. So again, as we conclude the program today, I want to thank you all. We look forward to your evaluations and feedback about the program itself. That's really helpful to us so we can plan um, programs in the future that are relevant to you, so also list your topics of interest. And I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.